This morning, we need to have a courageous conversation about an outrageous passage that God's given us in 1 Corinthians, a passage that has taken on even more weight in light of the recent Supreme Court decision about gay marriage. No doubt in the room this morning, there are a variety of opinions and beliefs. Some of you will hear the message this morning, and I hope you will stay through to the end, but you will leave thinking, just as I thought, these Christians are bigots, and this Christianity is intolerant and judgmental, and I don't know if I can come back. There are others of us in the room this morning that are thinking, finally, you know, it's about time someone blasted somebody. Our country deserves judgment, or at least the liberals do. Uh, Most of us in the room this morning are rather conflicted, perhaps even confused about this issue, because we know someone who's gay. We love someone who's gay. They are our children, our Sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters, our grandchildren, they are our co-workers and our friends. And yet, we also know that when it comes to the idea of sex outside of marriage, the Bible is crystal clear that it's out of bounds. And when the Bible speaks about marriage, and when all the religions and histories of the world have always said that marriage is a man and a woman. This seems like a rather ambitious redefinition that our country's made. So we're conflicted. We're confused. What I'd like to do this morning is go through this text, and then at the end have a a couple of of words about uh, the recent decision of the Supreme Court I think it's important, though, to understand not only, you know, how, what I'm going to say at the end, but how I've structured the message, because I think it's kind of a model. Here's what I mean. It's not good if we just go out into the world and wave our fingers and say, no, 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 all the time. It's better if we go out and have the approach with our friends, here's the yes, here's the yes, God loves the body. God loves sex. Here's how He's designed it. It's much better if we can start by stating what we believe and not just go around being the no, no, no. So I hope some of that's modeled for you this morning. I'm concerned that one of the greatest detriments the church has is Christians don't know how to explain their view of sexuality. And we don't know how to talk about God making our bodies and why this issue is important to him. So let's walk through a a theology of sex, and then make some comments on homosexuality. You with me so far? Okay. I'd like to go to the text, and right away point out the big idea. Here's what Paul's really after in this text. It's in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. The body is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Now you just reflect on that statement for a few moments. That is an outrageous thing that God is saying about our bodies. 
We'll unpack that as we go through. What I want to do is kind of structure the message a little bit with a metaphor to help us keep track of the structure. Maybe even it'll stick and help us talk about these important things. I, I see God's way of sexuality for us as a road. And the road will have two lanes to it. One lane is about God's view of our body. The second lane is about God's view of sex. So we'll talk about body theology and sexual theology. And then on the road, there are two guardrails. And the first guardrail to keep us safely on God's road is what we're going to call covenant. We'll unpack that in a few moments. And the second rail is what we'll call complement. We'll explain the guardrails in a few moments. Let's now read the text with some of this background in mind. And then we'll start down the road. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. We'll have it on the screen. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The word of the Lord. We need to begin by going back to Corinth. Corinth is in Greece. Greece is a beach country. Tons of beaches on the Mediterranean. But Corinth itself sat in this really strategic point of land, a four-mile-wide isthmus, where everyone would have to pass through to save a week of travel going around the Upper Peninsula. And so Corinth was a uh, commercial center. It was an entertainment center. It was a mega city of the uh, ancient world. And it was an urban environment, which means lots of young people. Everyone from Cor living in Corinth probably came from somewhere else, and they were separated from their family accountability structures. Corinth was bursting with sexual energy. You say, Larry, how do you know that? Well, we know that from some of the ancient literature where we read, first of all, it's perception in reality, the perception of Corinth. When your city name becomes a verb, you know that you're being characterized by something. In the ancient literature, to Corinthianize meant to have incredible sex with anything that moved. That's what Corinth was known for. And also in the ancient literature, you read about Corinthian girls. Before there was Corinthian leather, there was Corinthian girls. And you can imagine the same connotations if we were in our culture to call someone a Vegas girl. So this city bursting with sexual the reality of, of the skyline of Corinth was 
the, the most prominent feature was Acrocorinth. And then Acrocorinth was the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual love. And in Corinth, the scholars tell us that on any given night, there were a thousand male and female prostitutes that would provide door-to-door service for Aphrodite. This was an amazingly sexual, energized culture. And here in 55 AD comes the Apostle Paul with Jesus inside him. And he starts preaching a gospel. And he starts talking about God's view of sex and God's view of the body. And things begin to, 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 to change. Um, we get a glimpse of this from an early letter. One of the earliest letters we have outside of the New Testament. It's uh, called the Epistle of Diognetes. And in this, the Diognetes makes this incredible statement. He says, we Christians share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all. You see, for a Christian, sex is sacred. And money, easy come, easy go. Christians were promiscuous with their money, but not with their body. The pagans, money was sacred. Sex, easy come, easy go. So you can imagine, if you became a Christian in a place like Corinth, how you would stick out. Oh, there he is. There's, there's Cassius. Hi, Cassius. Cassius became a believer heard about the resurrection of Jesus from Paul, saw the beauty of Christ, his beautiful mind, the way for the first time in his life he had peace in his heart about things like sex and his trials, his struggles, and he became a Christ follower. But he still loved his old friends. And so Cassius, came, his friends came by, they want to go out on the night, and Cassius goes with him. Of course he still loves his friends. So they're out, and before you know it, the wine is flowing, the togas are off, and they're all in bed together. And there's Cassius sitting there saying, Can't we do something else tonight? You can imagine the temptation, the challenge of being a Christian in a culture like Corinth. In fact, some of the people were struggling with it. And as we've heard in chapter 5, there was this like big affair going on in the church. And in chapter 6, it does seem like people were visiting prostitutes. And we have to take that prostitutes with a different paradigm. It's not like so scandalous as it is in our culture. Prostitutes was like an everyday, ordinary occurrence. If you were probably having sex outside your marriage, it was probably with a prostitute. It didn't have the huge scandal on it that it has in our culture. But you can imagine how the temptation would be rough. Some were succumbing to it. Some were succumbing to poor thinking. And as we read in verse 12, some were saying, hey, you know, I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want with my body. We'll talk more about that next week, this idea of Christian freedom. Come back. It's going to be another wild Sunday next week. But I want to go to this other strain of thought that had crept into the Corinthians through their culture in verse 13 when it says, food for the body, the stomach, the stomach, For food, Christ will destroy them all. That's right out of the academy that you would learn in Epicureanism 101 in the Greek educational system. The Epicureanism means that the body's just a disposable tool. What we really are is creatures of soul. The body's just a tool to get pleasure, and through pleasure we can escape pain. So just use your bodies to get pleasure. It's your soul that counts. Your body doesn't matter. Now, there are strains of that in our culture. 
And I want to talk a little bit about our culture as we bridge a little bit here. Because our culture, I think, has strains of Epicureanism, but also this kind of new thing. Epicureanism, you know, sex is really nothing. Sex, like, hunger, sex, you're like food for, as an appetite for food and an appetite for sex. No big deal. There's strains of that in our culture, but our culture also makes everything about sex. So we live in a kind of culture that's even harder, I think, because in one hand, sex is nothing, no big deal. On the other hand, sex is everything behind every conversation you, you, you have or hear. So uh, a few years ago, any CU buffs in the house? Yeah, okay. It's like the number one party school in the country <laughs> some years, and I'll never forget um, reading, uh, and I couldn't find the exact quote. I wanted to source it for you and put it, but I remember because, frankly, the language is a little blunt. But uh, it, the CU student was being interviewed because CU was in the top ten of party schools, and they interviewed this college uh, man, the student, and uh, he said, yeah, he said, uh, when it comes to, you know, partying and sex, it's like, when I'm hungry, I go out and get a quarter pounder with cheese. And when I'm horny, I go, to go and find a date, and I hope she's willing. Sex is no big deal. Just an appetite. Just eat. On the other hand, sex seems to be everything in our culture. It's, it's apocalyptic. It, uh, I've loved and quoted to you before from Ernest Becker, The Denial of Death, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1974 at the height of the sexual revolution. It's an amazing book on American sexuality and culture. And uh, Becker, who was an atheist, but even an atheist that understood when you pull God out of the, the society, gaping holes open up in people's psyche and in their psychology and in their soul. Holes. And what's going to fill those holes? Well, Becker was saying, I'll tell you what's going to fill those holes. Love and romance. And he had this phrase that I've loved and preached to you many times called apocalyptic romance. Apocalyptic romance in American culture is this. When you find that one true love, you will be complete. You complete me. Apocalyptic romance. And uh, well, let's read about it. Becker has uh, this great quote. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love of the partner. Uh, in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the positions of, of God? We want redemption. Nothing else. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our creation has not been in vain. There's the American view of culture. It's just an appetite, but it's everything. Now let's get on God's road. I'd like to unpack how God views the body and sexuality and then have us make some sense out of that in our culture. The body, in verses 13 through 15, as we get on the road, let's see how God views the body. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them all. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And by His power, 
God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? There are some just mind-blowing statements. I call this an outrageous passage, and it really, really is. First of all, we see that we are going to be embodied forever. God takes a high view of our body, a prized view of our body. Because Jesus was raised, the Father chose to raise Him from the dead and honor His body. And Jesus now lives forever in a body. That means that we too, forever, there will be a moment of separation when we die now and before Jesus comes back, our soul will be in the God's presence, our body in the ground. But when Jesus comes back, our body is going to be made new and like unto Jesus and we will, as the Westminster Confession says, glorify God and enjoy Him forever, get this, embodied in a body. And we get a sense of that body from how Jesus walked around the 40 days after His resurrection. He had fish dinners so He could eat. Very physical. He had scars on His body. I've often wondered if tattoos are going to come through. Some of you might want to think that through. Now, um, (laughs) we are going to have this great and awesome fixed, healed body. And we are going to live in that body forever. So we are guaranteed body in the future. But we're also to use that body now. It talks about that uh, Christ, that word limb, that, that members. We are members of, uh, where is it? Help me here. Uh, anyhow, it talks about members of Christ Himself. That word members is literally the word limb. We are right now united with Christ in such a way that we are His hands, His legs, His ears, His mouth, His eyes. We are the embodied Christ now. Like St. Teresa's prayer, a prayer I love and we use often in our Stephen ministry training, Christ has no body now on earth but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which He looks compassion on the world. Yours is the mouth through which He says, Good news! You are the embodied Christ now. His physical body and Jesus are in heaven, but He sent His Spirit who lives in us, and now we are the hands and feet of Jesus. We get a glimpse of this in Acts chapter 9. Remember when Paul, is going, he's not saved yet. He's going around and looking for Christians to drag off into jail, and Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and says to him, the blinding light, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now think that. Think about that. Jesus and his physical body is in heaven. But he's saying to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Which the implication that Paul in persecuting the church, the physical body of Jesus on the earth now is us. That's what Paul was persecuting. That is just a mind-blowing statement too. So our body is guaranteed for the future. Our body is redeemed now for the use of Jesus. And then there's the amazing verses. We're going to jump ahead a little bit to 18 and 20. It's not only that we're guaranteed a glorified body or that we have a redeemed body now that Jesus wants to use, but in uh, 18 to 20 we are reminded that God lives in these bodies. Uh, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 
Our bodies are the meeting place between us and God. Our bodies are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. He moves in, takes up residence, and interacts with us within our bodies. And therefore, as the text says, we flee sexual immorality, we honor God with our body. It it means that our sexuality is always submitted to our spirituality. Our sexuality is always submitted to to our relationship with Christ who lives in us through his spirit in our body. Flannery O'Connor has a story called A Temple of the Holy Ghost. She tells the story of a precocious 12-year-old girl and two country boys who have come to court her visiting cousins. The girl overhears her teenage cousins mock a nun, Sister Perpetua, who has suggested a formula to use in fending off fresh young men in the back seats of cars. Stop, sir! I am a temple of the Holy Ghost, the nun taught the girls to say. The cousins think such advice hilarious. The girl, however, is moved. The news that she is the dwelling place of God makes her feel as if somebody has given her a present. God has a very high view of our bodies. He's promised it to us in the future. He's using it now as the embodied presence of Christ to advance His kingdom. And He's actually, actually living in us, in our body. That is a very high view and a very inspiring motive for making care for our bodies the flight and the fight of our life. So from that high view of the body, that's one lane, let's step into the other lane of sexuality. How does God view sex? Jumping from a high view of the body, we now want to talk about sex. We go to verses 15 through 17 as we read, Shall I then take the members of Christ, there's the limbs of Christ, And unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. The word unite there jumps out at us. It's mentioned several times. It's literally in the Greek the word for glue. And we've talked about this before when we did the Modern Family series. Nick preached through this text. He did a masterful job of explaining that that word, when, when someone is united to someone sexually, they, it's glue. It's, it's, uh, uh, it, it, the, sex is a physical act with metaphysical implications. There's no such thing as casual sex. You cannot have physical sex with a person and leave your soul parked outside. When you have physical sex with a person, when you you become glued to them, God has this view, and He's designed it this way, to have sex be a way of soul exchange. And when you have physical sex with a person, you become connected to them. That's glue. That's God's purpose for sex. C.S. Lewis had this great quote when he talks about what sex does with people. There's The truth is that wherever a man lies with a woman, there 
whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. God has designed the sexual act to be a form of physical pleasure, but even more, an exchange of psychic uh, soul um, connection that happens every time we have sex with a person. So it starts there with the idea of glue and, and, and the physical connection. But in verse 17, it's not just that sex forms a union between two persons, but for a believer, this is, I keep saying this, I'm sorry, my, I'm just not, this is outrageous. This is mind-blowing. I want you to think about verse 17, when it talks that we have a union with God. We are glued to God. The same word, that when we become a believer and follow Jesus, we are then first and above all glued to God. And so everywhere we walk and for whatever we use our bodies, because we're glued to God, we take Him with us. And that's why, did you notice in the text too how Paul's emotion is just ratcheting up here? And at the last few verses, he's like really going, don't you know? Three times, don't you know? Don't you know that when you have sex with a prostitute, you have dragged God, because you're glued to Him, into this unholy situation? And then he says, never! In the Greek, it's meganoito. And we learned in our Greek class that when you translate it, we always used to quote the old cotton patch translation from the 1950s. Do you know how they translated meganoito, never? Hell no! Because you're glued to God, you're going to bring Him into that situation? Hell no! Do you get the gist here that God takes a high view of our body and a high view of the sexual act? It ain't just sex. So we need guardrails. We need guardrails. First guardrail, covenant. God has designed the sexual act to be within the covenant of marriage. Why? Because when you are physically naked with someone, the way sex is designed is that you are also also emotionally naked, emotionally vulnerable, emotionally, uh, socially, uh, economically, Everything that you are as a person is designed to be given to the other person. And the way that's made and expressed in covenant is through this sexual act. Every time we have sex with our spouse, we are renewing our marriage vows. We are saying, I am yours in every way, not just my body. That's just the symbol. I am yours emotionally, economically, socially, spiritually. I give myself to you. That's what sex is designed to do. And so when we separate sex from the idea of completely giving ourselves to another person, we are splitting soul and body. We are fragmenting the soul because we're saying, I want to have sex with you, but I don't want to give you myself emotionally, spiritually, economically. And that is to separate and split soul and body. That's the first guardrail. Sex belongs in marriage, in covenant, and then sex is 
complement. Here, it's the idea that from the very beginning, the arc of the entire story of the Bible, it's been male and female. God created them male and female, and for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's been that way from the very beginning of the story to the very end of the story. When it ends and Jesus comes back and he is married to the church, bride and groom, it's written into our bodies. It is natural, bride and groom, but it's also the entire arc of the biblical story, bride and groom from garden to the end of time when Christ marries his bride. And the guardrail is to keep marriage then between a a man and a woman. It's what Paul has in mind in Ephesians 5 when he says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Get this. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife respect her. I am talking about Christ and the church. The point is that God has designed marriage between man and a woman as a pointer, a foretaste of that moment when Christ receives his bride. This is where I... We, the church, has problems with homosexuality. Because it is impossible for a homosexual marriage to reflect the picture of bride and groom. It cannot do it. The marriage is designed not only as a way to give, the sex act is designed not only as a way to give yourself completely to another person, but it's also designed in the giving to be a pointer to the way Christ gives himself for his bride and marries her. Folks, you know, we have this relationship with God, and we know that Christ rules us, and he does. And we know that Christ shepherds us, and he does. But do you also realize that Jesus wants to marry you? You are committed to him. He is certainly committed to you. And that embrace on that last day with Jesus will obliterate a thousand years of loneliness. Jesus wants to marry you. And the problem with homosexual marriage is that it cannot honor bride and groom written into our bodies and it cannot reflect the picture of Christ and his bride. That's why, in my opinion, that's why homosexuality cannot be accepted as biblical. Marriage. Let me be clear. And when I say homosexuality, I am referring specifically to the act of homosexual. Sex outside of biblically defined marriage. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual sex are all outside the design. It's not a sin to be gay. Do you hear that? It is not a sin to be gay. It is a sin to have sex outside of marriage. Marriage as defined biblically. So what are we to do 
now in light of the recent Supreme Court decision where it seems that we've entered kind of a, a new world, a new season of engagement with our culture. I'd like to suggest, and put it simply, that we stay on the road. That we stay on the road. The high view of body, the high view of sex. And let me just specifically, a couple of facets to help what I mean by stay on the road. First, we need to stay consistent. We need to stay on the road biblically. What do I mean? I mean this. Here, and here's how I think we explain it to our gay friends. The Bible is not just a book of no. The Bible is a book as an owner's manual for life. And we go around and we read the owner's manual, and one of the things we see there that when you go against God's design of things, there's harm, there's hurt, and there's frustration. And so what it is with homosexual marriage is, I think, going against the owner's manual. It's going against the design, and whenever we go against the design, there's violence to our soul. And so we need to stay consistent with the owner's manual. Well, I've had... I've actually quite a few gay friends, we dialogue much. One of them once said to me, but Larry, you know, why do you all have to make such a big deal of this? Homosexual sex is only mentioned like, what, six times in the Bible. And he's right. Six, seven, I think it's seven times it's mentioned, 11 verses. 11 verses in the entire Bible about homosexuals. Why such a big deal? Well, as I told him, I think that cuts a couple of ways. First, I would say this. If the Bible is from God, His voice, if it's the owner's manual, then once might be enough. Right? I mean, obey, disobey at your own risk, but once might be enough to talk about it. But six or seven. The the other thing I think it says is that it just, especially in the New Testament, and by the way, that's one big thing too, homosexual is spoken against in both the Old and the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's mentioned several times in the epistles of Paul. But I don't think it was mentioned more than that simply because it wasn't an issue in the early church. As we've seen in 1 Corinthians, the things that were issues get spoken to. The early church in no way conceived homosexuality as being a possibility, as acceptable marriage. That's why it was seldom talked about. And this is interesting I think we think we're the most enlightened culture at times, and everyone, you know, we're cultural snobs that way. Actually, in Roman Empire, homosexuality was much more accepted than it is in our culture even now. In fact, the average Roman well-to-do citizen had a wife, a mistress, or more, and a teenage boy, or more. Pedernasty was very acceptable in Roman culture. The Romans were not all hung up on sexual orientation uh, or homosexual. They would never dream of homosexual marriage. But they were all about sex in all its form and fashion. And so it was very common in the Roman Empire. But it never got into the church, which is why I think it was never talked about. But let me say one more thing. I think that every time the Bible, and specifically Jesus makes a statement about marriage, he makes a statement about homosexuality. And he says a lot about marriage. And it's always male and female, he created us, therefore leave father and mother to become one. Covenant and complement. 
He always talked about this. So the reason the Bible doesn't talk about homosexuality much is because it's talking about heterosexuality much as God's design. And so we honor the owner's manual. Now, here's something for Waterstone I really want us to hear. I think it's important. The Bible doesn't talk about it all that much. And when it does talk about it, it does not hammer homosexuals. It is very grace-filled and gentle and straight to the point. It does not hammer homosexualities. So why do we? Why do we hold homosexuality up as like the worst kind of sin? When, you know, we lost the battle for Christian marriage a long time ago. When we started accepting premarital sex and no-fault divorce as normative in the culture and in the church. We lost this battle a long time ago. So why are we jumping on the bandwagon against homosexuality? My, my gay friends think we're a tad bit hypocritical going after this the way that we have. I've been thinking about this. You know, why is it that we really some some of us really go after the gay thing and the homosexuals here's my theory it's because many of us probably don't struggle with that and so those sins that we don't struggle with we like to put on a list these are the things we don't struggle with and we feel morally superior above those who do my friends when you have seen that your sin this morning was the sin that nailed Jesus to the cross where he freely bore hell for us. When you see what your sin did and how it put Christ on the cross, how could we ever be personally offended by anyone else's sin? One more thing. It's not just that we elevate homosexuality above all sexual sins. We seem to elevate it above all sins. In these verses, we're going to put them up on the screen, uh, verses 9 through 11, which are just before the text we're preaching today. There's this list of ten vices, and you'll see one of the vices on there is greed. Paul says that homosexuality is no worse than greed. Now, if in our church we hear that a member has fallen into a homosexual lifestyle, we're going to go and have conversation with that person. But what about when one of you buys a car that costs five times more than it should have? Do we ever send the elders to talk to you then? Why? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need to be consistent biblically and talk and think about the issue as the Bible does. Secondly, we're running out of time. I want to wrap two more things. Secondly, we need to stay consistent relationally. I have just been coming back this week in my study too to the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not enough, Jesus says, that we love our neighbor. We have to love our despised neighbor. A Samaritan in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day was a despised. They were the most despised people group. And Jesus says, yeah, Good Samaritan. They need to be on your list. You need to love them. You need to love them. Billy Graham summed this up well when he said, it is the Spirit's job to convict, 
It is God's job to judge. It is my job to love. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be biblical? Wouldn't it be the parable of the Good Samaritan if Waterstone became somehow known as a place where the gay community was welcomed and served? I don't know how, except to seek friendship with Good Samaritans. Lastly, we need to stay consistent biblically. We need to stay consistent relationally. We need to stay consistent missionally. This is where it gets messy. This is where we have different opinions. The mission of the church is to take the gospel to the world. We are to engage culture, not hide from culture, not retreat. Engage. And there's that question between can you engage with the culture but not be contaminated by the culture, not be pulled down by the culture? That's the gray area in which we live and work. So real quick case study. I mean, it comes to this. You're friends with a gay person. They're getting married. Would you go to their wedding? We've talked about this. Let me just tell you where I come down on that. I'll be very honest with you. As a pastor, I've been approached to marry two of my gay friends, one kid from my youth group back in a previous life when I was a youth pastor. He's now openly gay, Christian gay. Wanted me to marry. I, I could not marry, perform a wedding ceremony for a gay wedding. Do you know why? Because as we've said, I don't think that's marriage. And so if I were to go and pronounce blessing as a minister of the gospel on that, I would be the uttermost hypocrite that I know. I am the uppermost hypocrite that I know, but uh, you know what I'm saying. That would be the ultimate in hypocrisy. I couldn't do it. The pastoral staff at Waterstone, we've had discussions. We couldn't do it. But could I go to a gay wedding? Could I even set up the reception for a gay wedding? Could I pay the photographer? I think I would. Why? Because I value relationship. I value for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We need to be consistent. The same question, would you go to a wedding where a couple was living together before they were married? Would you go to a wedding where one of the spouses was no fault divorced? Be consistent. Think biblically about it. Take the mission to the world and every part of the world. And let me be quick to add, we won't all agree on this. So can we be civil and respect conscious and we'll talk about Christian freedom next week. Let me end with this. There's Jesus. Do you see him? There's Jesus. He's at a well. He's getting a drink. A Samaritan woman's there. A Samaritan woman. Jesus goes up, would you give me a drink? She says, sure. And then Jesus says, what if I gave you living water and if you drink it, you'd never be thirsty again? She says, give it to me. He says, go get your husband. <laughs> she says, I don't have a husband. <laughs> Jesus says, yeah, I know, you've had five and the one you're living with is now not your husband. <laughs> Can you imagine? Why? Why did Jesus call her out? Because she was guilty of apocalyptic romance. Her love and her romance was the very center of her life. 
And Jesus wanted to heard and hear this, that unless you make me your one true love, you will always be thirsty. My friends, if you're here and you're gay, the most important thing is not that you agree with this as I've unpacked it. The most important thing this morning is that you've made Jesus your one true love. And having him at the center, he will lead you. He will lead me. He will lead us in all of our sexual brokenness when we make him our one true love. He heals our brokenness. And that is the beginning of the journey for each one of us. Don't sell your place at the table like Esau for a bowl of oatmeal. This is just a road. This is not the goal. This is a road to the goal. And the goal is at the end of time, the embrace of Jesus and Him saying, You are my one true love. Right now we're going to sing a song, and I want you to sing it to Jesus, all of us, and I want you to sing it to him, declaring, Jesus, you are my one true love.